Well, this is like a family reunion. Oh, so many of you I haven't seen in so long. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. And I, and I hope you're here for Jesus. Because uh, that's why we're here, right? Um, there's just so much I want to say. And the only thing I'm going to say uh, here at the beginning is, because I'll forget, um, immediately after the service, Chris and I, and Randy and Savannah, it's, it's Savannah's here, I haven't seen her. Um, we're going to go out to the patio, so we're somewhat more accessible. We'd love to see you, we'd love to talk with you a little bit, we'd love to give you a hug if we haven't already. And so that's where you can find us after the service. And not that uh, I'm assuming you want to, some of you are just going to want to go to lunch, and that's fine <laughs> too, and uh, it's great. Well, the day has finally arrived, and... And how does, um, how does a pastor preach his final sermon after 28 years of ministry with the people he loves? Uh, don't misunderstand that. This will probably not be the last time I ever preach. I'm, I have not died yet. And nor do I plan on dying anytime soon. Frankly, there's much that I hope to accomplish with God's help before he calls me home. In fact, I am actively praying, and I hope you'll join me, I am actively praying that the Lord would grant that my future years, however long or short they may be, will be more fruitful than my past years. Amen. How is that going to happen? I don't know. But I think the Lord would be honored by praying big prayers, asking for big things for his glory and for our joy. Let me just, I saw a pastor do this recently. It's going to take a little bit more time than I normally do, but what are the elders going to do? They fire me? <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble for that one. <laughs> so let me just take a quick poll. Uh, how many of you are 29 years old and, and under? Raise your hands. Yeah. Can you see that? So many young people here. Praise God for you. Um, if you are between 29 and 50, raise your hands. Wow, there's more of them. And then if you are 50, between 50 and, I don't know, 100. <laughs> Somebody saw that coming. Oh, that's wonderful. This is Calvary Bible Church, right? And you didn't even see the whole group down there that's as big as this group here down the hall. Some of you young men and women are the younger ones in this catalog. And you are fired up about Jesus and his gospel. I know you are because you talk to me about it a lot. You're dreaming great dreams. You, you want to you know the love of Christ. You want to know Christ more. You want to know the word more. You want to tell people about it. And perhaps you're a new believer and this is your first church. Welcome. And some of even you, because of the influences in your life, you're already fired up about the, the possibility of developing an ambition for proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And then there are the men and women who are more in their 30s and 40s. They're kind of hit their prime. They've got children. And they're thinking maybe about missions like Dexter and Jesse May, who I heard from again this morning. You may be thinking about missions, or it might just be that you're thinking about just being as fruitful as you can possibly be for the glory of God in your home and in your marriage and among your children. And that's wonderful. And then there are the guys like me chasing 60 or more. And the world describes them as sliding comfortably into the sunset years. The sunset years. And I think that's horrible. <laughs> and it may even be unbiblical 
Proverbs 4:18 says, "The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day." So listen, when I finish my race, I want my experiential love for Christ, my knowledge of God's word, and the fruitfulness of my ministry to be compared not to a fading sunset, but the blazing glory of the sun. And to be perfectly honest, as I said, I I have no idea what that's going to look like. I have little idea what that's going to look like for the future for me, but I'm convinced as long as I have breath and I am able to communicate with humans, I want to be telling people about the love of Christ, discipling, training, preaching, anything God may call me to do, and and it seems faithfulness demands. So for today, as Richard Baxter said, Today I'll preach as never, never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this hour and we ask you to use it in the hearts of your people in, in a thousand ways that I may never know of. I suspect, however, Father, that there are some who are listening to my voice who believe that they are children of God when they are not. Father, I I know that that's that's where many of us were when you came and took our hearts, caused us to be born again to a living hope. I pray for them, and I pray for your saints here, that we would grow, that we would leave here with a holy ambition to know you more, to delight in you more, and to live sacrificially for one another in the world around us. So, Lord, would you do that? And in the process, would you protect us from error? Fill us with your truth. Fill us with your spirit. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And my goal in this message is to elevate in your hearts the glory of Christ in such a way that bears the fruit of Christ-like humility in your lives and in this church. This church is about to experience significant transition. We've already started. And just because I'm stepping down and, and someone else is stepping up, we praise the Lord for that. The Lord is in control of his church. This does not rest on the whims of men. And so we want this church to be as strong as possible. I want this church to be as strong as it possibly can be by the power of of God and his word. In the bulletin, it says the big idea for this message reads this. The mark of a Christ-besotted church is a congregation that serves one another in humble, selfless love. Now, the word besotted is probably one that most of you have never heard. But Jonathan Edwards loved to use this phrase, this term, this word. He liked to speak of God-besotted joy or a Christ-besotted life. And what he means is a, a life that is utterly infatuated, consumed by the glory of Christ. And so we should strive to have a Christ-besotted life and a Christ-besotted church. And so I use this term because I believe that God is calling us as a church to embrace Christ-besotted humility, to stabilize and strengthen this Christ-besotted church. And so to that end... Would you allow me, please, to spend the rest of our time together this morning? Let me introduce you to the highly exalted Christ. So please take your Bibles and stand with me in honor of God's word. And let's read together Philippians 2, 5 through 11. If you're new here, haven't been around in a long time, just follow along in whatever version you have and, and I'll do the reading 
Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You're very familiar with this text, I know. And so this is the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And he says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God. Do not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. And taking on the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? It's Lord to the glory of God the Father. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. I get that water down there. The mark of a Christ-besotted church is a congregation that serves one another in radical, selfless love. Many scholars believe that this passage was originally a hymn sung by the early Christians, to commemorate and celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And oh, how I wish that song had been preserved. Just two main themes here presented in this passage. The Apostle Paul is writing, and his two themes are these. Number one, the humiliation of Christ, which we'll spend most of our time with. And then secondly, the exaltation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ, verses 6 through 8. The exaltation of Christ, verses 9 through 11. So let's talk about the humiliation of Christ for a little while. If you're familiar with Philippians, you know that Paul's concern here is that the believers persevere in their blood-bought unity through relational, humi- uh, <laughs> relational humility. And moreover, he often uses the kind of illusion of Christ that he's going to use here. And he offers the ultimate example of how deep our humility should be as we relate to one another in the church and in our homes, and it's deeper than you think. You may think you're a humble person. And when you're done this passage, I I hope you see your pride. And so Paul says this, Have this mind, this attitude, this posture among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What attitude? The attitude of humility. The attitude that diminishes self for the benefit of others. Beginning in verse 6 then, he unpacks what is arguably the greatest truth in the Bible, namely, The God, the Son, who is worthy of unrestrained and unmitigated worship and praise, this being before whom every intelligent creature on earth and and above the earth and under the earth should bow in humble adoration, this being, this person, actually humbled himself to accomplish our salvation. This was radical humility. How can this be? How can it be that the one who said in Isaiah 14 that the nations before him are but a drop in the bucket and are counted as small as dust in the balance and declared that all the nations before him are as nothing and are as counted as less than nothing? How can he rank himself under those whose status is infinitely beneath him? Puritan pastor George Swinnick suggests that if we are able to conceive of the idea of anything being less than nothing, then we will begin to understand what all things are in comparison to Christ. 
Who is this highly exalted being? Well, we already know that he is Christ Jesus, our Lord. But we should allow Paul the courtesy of telling us this morning who Jesus really is. So let's learn from Paul, as if we had never heard this before. And beloved, can I just insert here, my goal here is not simply to fill your heads with truth about Jesus. Your heads are already full of that. I want your heart to be deeply impressed by what you are reminded of regarding Jesus. So impressed, in fact, that you will leave here and you'll say, I got to get some things out of my life so I can spend more time meditating on, rejoicing in, glorying in, delighting in Jesus by his word, by fellowship through prayer, by fellowship with one another. It's not good enough just to come to church. If you are going to know him as he wishes to be known and as he has invited you to know him, you have to be proactive. You have to be intentional. You have to fight for it. And it's worthy of fighting for. So who is this Jesus? Well, Paul begins, verse 6, with these words, though he was in the form of God. Let's stop there for a moment. Now, if we were not taking time to be careful with this text, one might read it and say, aha, Paul is teaching that Jesus came in the form that looked something like God, but he really isn't God. And if you believe that, you are a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon, or worse. Perhaps he is wearing the clothes of God, they say, but he's not God in his inmost essence. But that would be a mistake. Indeed, that would be a heretical, dangerous error. When Paul speaks of Christ being in the form of God, he was speaking of how Christ appeared to those who, he, who, who knew him in heaven before he became the incarnate Son of God, before he came into this world. To the extent that he could be perceived in heaven before he came to earth, it was only in the form of God. God the Father always knew the Son as God. God the Spirit always knew the Son as God. The angels in heaven always knew the Son as God. Even the fallen angels knew him to be God. Moreover, Paul could have chosen one of two Greek words for the English term form. And he chose the one that specifically denotes the exact character of something, what Jesus is in his inmost self. And what is he in his inmost self? He is God. He is the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. And don't you love how Moses says, and he created the stars also, as if that were a second thought. Listen, beloved, before Mary gave birth to him, Jesus existed in the form of God. Before the Babylonian captivity, Jesus existed in the form of God. Before the prophets foretold about the suffering servant, Jesus existed in the form of God. Before David became king, Jesus existed in the form of God. Before Abraham and the patriarchs turned the course of history, Jesus existed in the form of God before the Tower of Babel, before the worldwide flood. Jesus existed in the form of God. Before Adam ate from that forbidden tree, Jesus existed in the form of God. Before light burst into darkness and before the earth was born, Jesus existed in the form of God. And for all eternity past, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus existed in the form, the exact essence of God. Which is why I read a moment ago, 
Hebrews chapter 1. And as we get caught up in this glory of Jesus, and I hope you are, as we get caught up in the glory of Christ in this passage, we must not forget that Paul is also illustrating using this humility of Jesus, this exalted Christ humbling himself to teach us what true humility is like. The kind of humility that he expects of us. By the way, just as an aside here, liberal theology starts with virtues like humility. Biblical theology begins with truth. And from the truth comes all the virtues that God wants us to implement in our lives. And the most important truth we need to know is that God's word is true. And God is Jesus. Jesus is God. So when he declares that, Jesus Christ, that Christ Jesus was in the form of God, I think Paul wants us to catch the disparity between Christ's status and your status. What ruins unity in the church is self-exaltation and self-aggrandizement among sinners. You say, well... Jesus calls us to worship him, and that is true. But he is not a sinner. He isn't a sinner. He is God. And as God, he really does deserve to have all the other creatures that he has created to worship and adore and obey him. And yet he humbles himself to get under us and elevate us, not because we deserve it, but because of his great Awesome love. A common theme in Paul's letters is the exhortation for believers to grow progressively more and more in Christ. Here in Philippians 2, however, Paul is showing us just how far we have to grow. Do you think you're humble? When was the last time you had an argument with your wife? Is it a humble argument? Is it a humble fight? I have a pastor friend many years ago. Um, he and his wife and me and my wife found ourselves in conflict with one another and we just worked and worked for hours and we just couldn't sort it out. And he said, hey, you mind if I step out for a minute? And a little while later, he stepped back in. And he said, brother, I want you to know as I stepped out and thought about these things, I realized the problem here all began with me. If I had not said this or done that or whatever it was he confessed, we wouldn't be in this situation. It's not about what you thought or what you may have said or done. It's about me. And I need to plead with you to forgive me. And you know what? I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. That doesn't mean that, that I didn't have wrong to confess too. But what he was demonstrating was radical humility. Radical humility that binds people together. Can I just tell you something? I don't know why I'm asking you that. <laughs> Some of my closest friends over the years have been people that I've had the worst conflict with. Because by the grace of God, we were able to respond biblically and humbly to one another. Friends, we need to learn that. If we're going to move forward as a church, we just need to grow deeper in that. I love how, how the humility that God has created in your heart already and has been working in you. And we can grow in that direction all the more. Here we are shown the vast difference between Holy God, who deserves worship, but enters into personal humiliation, compared with sinful men who deserve eternal humiliation and demand to be worshipped. But before we move on, Paul has more to say about Jesus' deity, the fact that Jesus is God. Again, he writes in verse 5, 
he, that is Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Stop there again. The word grasp here means to cling to, to seize upon for oneself. When the Father sent the Son to earth to redeem a people for his own possession, by taking on the form of a servant and living among sinners and dying in their place, the Son did not demand his rightful status or place of supremacy. He deserved it. You know what he did instead? The text says he emptied himself. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Well, it doesn't mean that he stopped being God. It doesn't mean he gave up any of his infinite attributes as God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If Jesus is God, and he is, then he is God all the way. He is God through and through. In the Nicene Creed, it it is written, they identify Jesus here as this. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And they are specifically speaking of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. If Christ the eternal King would give up any of his infinite attributes, he would have ceased to be God. And he is, he is not God at all, if that is true. And if that is true, he can save exactly no one. No matter how radically humble he may be. John MacArthur writes, Jesus didn't exchange his deity for humanity. When he left his heavenly abode to come to earth, born of a virgin, in Bethlehem, he simply renounced certain divine privileges that he exercised freely before the throne of his Father in heaven. Now he sets them aside to live under the normal constraints of being a man. This was self-renunciation. This wasn't giving up being God. He was not emptying himself of deity. He was humbling himself in the extreme. Jesus didn't have to steal divine glory. He didn't have to commit robbery, as the King James says, to be equal with God. Equality with God was something that he already possessed. He was God. He was just temporarily clothed in humility on earth. But one day, his true glory will shine forth. And even in the scriptures, we see foretastes of it. Previews of coming attractions. I guess nobody says that anymore. You see it just here and there, like when Isaiah walked into the temple and saw the Lord high and lifted up. Apostle John tells us that Lord who was high and lifted up with the angels declaring, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah fell on his face. John tells us that was Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, it's as if Jesus peeled back the humble clothing of a servant and showed who he really was. This glorious luminescent king. But one day he will come and we will see him. Our eyes will see him. And he will be glorious. What it did mean, practic what did it practically mean when Jesus is said to have emptied himself or poured himself out? Well, it meant, look at verse 7. Verse 7, it means taking on the form of a slave a servant, a doulos, by being made in the likeness of men. Now notice first that he bore the form or the exact essence of God, verse 6. And then he took the form, the exact essence of a slave, verse 7. 
by becoming a man. In what sense was he a slave? Well, of course, Jesus served everyone. People were always coming to him selfishly to get what they wanted from him. Instead of being honored as king, he was often treated as someone from the lowest caste of society. But more, the more important way that he was a slave is in the sense that he put himself totally at the disposal of the people to whom he served. For your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. The king became a slave for you. Consider Jesus' life. You see how this played out. The, he stepped down from his highly exalted throne. He humbled himself to become a human baby, completely dependent upon his mother. He suffered the indignities of childhood, the awkwardness of adolescence, the reproach of jealous siblings, and the rejection of the very people he had created. And despite his unquestionable power to heal the sick and feed the hungry and calm storms and cast out demons and raise the dead and lead people into the truth, they rejected him. He came unto his own, and his own, what? Did not receive him. This is the life of a slave. This was the life of a slave. And then Paul says in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This was not a slave's kind of death. This was the execution fit for a criminal. In, a, in an ultimate travesty of justice, the Son of God was sentenced to death for breaking the very law that he created and perfectly fulfilled every moment of his life. And how did, how did he respond? He responded with radical humility. Beloved, you'll never really fully understand what the virtue of humility is until you know something of the deity and glory of Christ. You think you're humble because you compare yourself with someone who is blatantly arrogant. We need to compare ourselves to the Son of God. Like a lamb to be slaughtered, he did not open his mouth when they took him to the cross. And note how Peter describes Jesus' response to be, being nailed to the cross. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. By the way, you know what the context of that passage is? Marriage. marriage. What Peter was saying is your problem is that you have not learned to suffer well. Look to Jesus. See how he responded to ill treatment, wrong treatment, brutal treatment, and you will get a glimpse of what the Apostle Paul is calling you to live like. Imagine, imagine that kind of humility, what it would do in the atmosphere of your home, the way you and your teenage children talk to one another, the way you and your spouse communicate with one another, or the, the, the telemarketers on the phone, or, or whoever, your neighbor. Just as in eternity past, Christ always bore the likeness of God on earth. He bore the likeness, he, he didn't bear the likeness of God on earth. He bore the, the, the likeness of man. And this is amazing, that God now has become man. 
If you were to see Jesus with his disciples, you wouldn't have identified him as the guy who had the glowing halo over his head. Oh, there's Jesus. If you had never met him before going into that room, you would have never known who he was. He's just another man. If you walked into a crowd where Jesus was and you were looking for the Son of God, you would not have been able to pick him out. He looked like Randy or Rodney. He was born the way all human babies are born. He grew like all humans. He increased in wisdom and stature like every human. He became hungry and thirsty. He, he wept. He rejoiced. And most importantly, he died. He died. And, and, and that may be the most remarkable thing that I've said so far. Because here is the incorruptible God who created life itself. All life coming from him. He is immortal. You know what immortal means? Cannot die. And yet Jesus died for you. He died. He died as any man who experienced crucifixion would die. It is truly amazing. It's something that we cannot fully comprehend. The immortal God willingly gave up his life. And Jesus, you remember, he said, no one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me. I give it freely. And I will take it up again. Jesus existed on this earth and now in heaven as a man. Think about that. He exists in heaven as a man, just as surely as he existed as eternal God. He became one of us, and he is still one of us, plus God. At Christmas time, we refer to this as the incarnation. Incarnation is a reference to something becoming man. In this case, it is God and man being joined together. The Apostle John said it a little differently than than this, he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. I think he's referring to that occasion when they were on the mountain and they saw the blinding glory of Jesus. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. This has been called theologically the hypostatic union, the union of God and man. And we're not going to go into that today except to say that, that this is what it is. God and man came together in one person, the person of Jesus Christ. You know, you could, you could sit and meditate on that, read some good books on the Trinity, and you would be amazed if you would allow your heart to be amazed by it. Jesus really is all that it means to be God. And he is all that it means to be man. This is not mere, merely a theological construct, beloved. This is biblical. And let me just give you two verses, and there are more. Romans 1, 1 through 3, Paul wrote, Concerning God the Son, God the Son, that's deity, who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's humanity. Or Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that's deity, born of a woman, that's humanity. What we learn from these texts is that Jesus Christ is both God and man. One author writes this, the incarnation is the central miracle of Christianity. The most grand and wonderful of all the things that God has ever done. God became man. 
He humbled himself to save us. How should you and I respond to all of this? Well, you should fall to your knees like the wise men and worship. You should bow your heads before the Father, begging him that you, being firmly grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to experientially know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. But we are so distracted by everything else in this world. I am so easily distracted. I have to fight in the morning to get my, my mind working and get my bottom in the chair where I can sit and open the Bible and meditate and read and, and pray. And we should ask for the grace to humble ourselves, to rank ourselves under that contrary person in your church or in your home or in the mirror. Jesus has modeled it, and Jesus is worth it. Now as we meditate on everything Paul has taught us about Jesus thus far, perhaps we are left with one question. Why? Why did the king of heaven subject himself to such humiliation? Why did he humble himself to ultimate, the, the ultimate extreme? Well, there's only one answer. He did it because it was the only way that you and I, who are by nature hardwired to reject him, it's the only way that we could be saved. As the prophet Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All our sin on the Lamb of God. The sovereign king of all creation humbled himself, not merely by enduring insults and mistreatment, but by, but by allowing the ungodly of his day to cut off his life like a spotless lamb on the altar of divine justice. As Paul explains in verse 8, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Why? Because the mission of God the Father that he gave to the Son was to rescue the lost and to justify the ungodly. And I say again, as I've said 10,000 times before, in the last 28 years. If you believe that you are ungodly and unworthy of Christ, you are the only kind of person the gospel works for. It helps no one who is too proud to bend the knee. If you think you're a hopeless case, that's why Jesus came and to die. The gospel is for you. It is for you if you will have it. People like you and me. As Paul will explain to, to us later, God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my wicked, rebellious, disobedient, sinful life so that he could treat me and you as if you had lived Jesus' perfect life. Friends, no matter how many times we hear this, and you've heard it many times here, no matter how many times you've, you've heard this story of redemption, of sinners being bought by the blood of Christ and his righteousness. Every time we hear it, we should find it breathtaking. We should, in our heart of hearts, look to Christ 
and find that we have a Christ-besotted heart full of Christ, infatuated with Christ, consumed with Christ. A biblical way to say that would be this. Love the Lord your God with all of your what? Your heart and with all of your mind and all your strength. It is going to take your strength because you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to cut things out of your life. Jesus says if your right hand offends you, cut it off, throw it away. Throw it away. I hope that as you meditate on these things this week in your home and in your small group, it will have this effect on your life. The humiliation of Christ now, we get to the second point. I have a little bit of time left. Paul's now moving us to, from the, the humiliation of Christ now to the exaltation of Christ this epic narrative of the humble sovereign doesn't end in shameful death, you know. You see, Jesus is king not only over all of heaven and earth, but also king over death and hell. Therefore, death could not hold him, and the grave could not keep him. And the undeniable proof, he rose from the dead. Now, at this point, we might ask, how did the father respond to all of this? How did the father respond to his son after all the mistreatment, the hatred, and Christ's humble response to those who treated him that way with such malice and hatred and contempt? How did the father respond? I mean, how would you respond if it were your child? You would want to do bad things to that person, sinful things. You know what God the Father did? We don't have to speculate. Look at verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Don't lose that last phrase, to the glory of the Father. It was the Father's great delight to exalt the Son and bestow upon him a special gift. What is that gift? The gift is a name a title of supremacy, an appellation of divine majesty. After a lifetime of self-humbling and obedience, there comes to Jesus in the Father's good pleasure the very thing that he might have grasped and didn't, namely the glory and honor and status that he deserved the one that he divested himself of in humiliation when he left his father's throne to be born of a woman in Bethlehem. God gave him a name. What is that name? Well, at first blush, you might think that he's referring to the name Jesus. In fact, however, the name Jesus only tells us who is poised to receive the gift. It does not reveal to us what the gift is. In his earthly ministry, the son, the son's name was Yeshua. And if you have any leanings toward Hebrew, you can hear Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. Yeshua means Jehovah saves. That's what Jesus' name means. If, if your name is Joshua, it's the same name. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Now, now that his work is complete and his exaltation has come, this same Jesus is given 
this new name. And you know what the new name is? The title of his name is what? Lord. The name that the Father gave his Son is Lord. Again, listen to Paul in in verses 9 through 11. Let me read it again. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, and that, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of the Father. And so you see, beloved, God's goal in redemptive history was not merely the salvation of sinners. To be sure, we might say that the salvation of sinners was not ultimate, it was penultimate. The ultimate goal is that in the end of all things, the end of all history, all people, all rule and authority, all of it will be summed up in Jesus Christ. Hence, we read in the New Testament scriptures like this. And again, I'll only give you a couple. Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in, the age, in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave as head over all things to the church. He gave Jesus the head of all things to the church. And so what does all of that mean? It means this. I, was, I came to, to get, put in a new garage door at our house this week. And I was out there talking to him. He was listening to some uh, Christian radio station. And, uh, and I said, oh, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit. And he said, okay. I said, uh, do you know the Lord? And he said, yeah, I do. Everybody knows the Lord. And I said, well, not everybody. And inside I'm thinking, well, probably not you. But, but I said, um, I said, so, um, you mind if I ask you a question? And he said, sure. I said, if you were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, do you believe you're going to heaven? Yes. I said, why do you believe that? And he said, because, um, because I trusted in him. And I said, what did you trust him for? And he said, I don't know. He, he was trusting in trust. And I said, uh, does Jesus factor into the equation? And he said, he died on the cross for all my sins, right? And I said, well, that's true. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for sins. And then I, I asked him, um, do you believe this? And he said, well, I do. And I believe because I invited him into my life. And then I stepped back into the house a few minutes, and I came back out, and he said, Hey, how did you like my answer? <laughs> That's never happened before. <laughs> and I said, well, it was good. It had some important things in there somewhere. <laughs> and um, I said, can I give you a better answer? I said, sure. I said, the reason you're saved, if you are saved, is because God the Father was so determined to glorify his Son that he sent him to earth to die on your place on the cross. It is only by his blood and righteousness that you can be born again. How's that? And he said, that was better. <laughs> I didn't have any more time to talk with him. Beloved, this is, this is the truth. This isn't that Jesus loves you he does love you. But that's not the ultimate reason why he saved you. 
The reason that you were born again is not, first of all, that God looked at you and loved you. Rather, it's because God the Father said to God the Son, I want to glorify your name. I want to exalt you above everything in heaven and in earth. So go to them. Go to them. Love them by giving your life, your righteousness, and they will be justified. And they will be saved. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 27, it says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Do you understand, beloved? This is all about the glory of Christ. Your salvation is not so much about you. It is about the glory of Christ. You just get the benefits, all the benefits. You get heaven. You get the Holy Spirit. You get eternal life. You get fellowship with Jesus. You get the ability to conquer sin in your life. You get it all. But that's not ultimate. What is ultimate is that Jesus Christ be glorified. You, you sang with us this morning, did we not? Maybe we did not. <laughs> All I have is Christ. Did we sing that today? Good. We'll just pretend if we... Okay. The reason we sing songs like that is because we have this theology. Everything hinges on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the blazing center of all of true Christianity, and all of it finds its proper orbit around him. Does your life find its proper orbit around him? Do you worship him? I don't mean do you come to church. You can come to church. People, let me just tell you a secret. There are people here and in the room down the hall, mostly down the hall. <laughs> there are people here. I have no idea who they are. People here who come to church. I don't know why. But they didn't come to worship. And all the time we were praying and singing, they were blank inside. They were thinking about other things. They just let their mind go where their mind goes. That's not why God created you. He created you for joy that passes all understanding. And the only way you get it is by exalting Christ in your life. Do you know him? Do you delight in him? Do you read his word? Do you sing his praises from the heart? Do you battle sin? You say you love him. You mean you don't hate him. But you probably... Maybe only think you love him if you are not pursuing him. You see, beloved, there is a day coming, a great day, a glorious day, a terrible day, when everything and everyone will be handed over to Christ, the sovereign ruler of all. And every intelligent being who has ever lived in heaven, that would be the cherubim, the seraphim, all the 10,000 times 10,000 angels, including archangels, and all the redeemed of humanity who have departed from this earthly life and entered into the presence of the Lord. That's in heaven. And everything on earth, these are people who are alive today on earth, on that great and terrible day, we will bow. And under the earth, all the damned of hell, along with the malevolent demons, all of them, and, and together, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the victor. Jesus Christ is the ruler. Jesus Christ is, say it with me, Lord. To the glory of the Father. You remember in John 17, where Jesus is preaching his high priestly prayer, 
And now I have just said the Father has exalted the Son, lives to exalt the Son. In John 17, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Glorify me so that I can glorify you. This is the united heart of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And listen, you know what Christianity is about? It's about inviting us, inviting all people everywhere into the joy of having a relationship with this God. Not just a theology about this God, but a relationship. Which is why I said at the beginning, you may have heard me say experiential knowledge, not just theological knowledge. You may know this, but the earliest confession of the church, the ancient church, was very simple, and it is this. Jesus is Lord. And you know what? Most of the people who were martyred in Rome, you know why they were martyred in Rome? Because the authorities in Rome said, you must pinch the incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And they would say, Jesus is Lord. And they died for it. You know why? Because they knew what we don't know. They love what we don't love. They experience what we don't experience. Because we love the world. I pray that that will not be true for us. And this statement, Jesus is Lord, oh, how it must have strengthened the suffering saints in Philippi to know and believe that in the ultimate sense, Jesus is not, I'm sorry, Caesar is not Lord. Nero is not Lord. For us, Supreme Court is not Lord. The Democrats are not Lord. And some might be surprised to hear the Republicans are not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And as you meditate on the glory of the supreme, glorious Christ in your homes, I pray that we as a church become a Christ-besotted people with Christ-besotted humility, radical humility. We were rejoicing just standing down here talking to people I haven't seen in years. And somebody said, remember that time? I didn't have a car. And somebody said, you don't have a car? I have two cars. Here, take my car. Really? Does that happen? It happens if you understand who Jesus is. And your desire is to live, him, live for him and please him and serve him. This is radical humility. The evidence that we, the evidence that we are a God-besotted, Christ-besotted people will be when it is obvious that we are relating to one another in humble, selfless, sacrificial, joyful love. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Oh, my strength, how you have filled us with hope, how you have filled us with joy, how you have reminded us of the glory of the one who has given it to us. We humble ourselves. We are here this morning and every time we gather to do what Paul said one day everyone will do, namely, to bow before you in worship, forgetting about ourselves, forgetting about our sins. They get pushed out of our minds and our hearts for a little while so that we can focus on you 
and not just us, Lord, but every church that loves Jesus and is seeking to obey his word and find the joy and delight in him. Lord, we are one church among a veritable sea of churches who have not bowed the knee to Baal or any idol. They bow to you alone. We ask you, Father, to strengthen your church by causing us to have a greater, deeper, richer understanding of this Christ whom we serve. And as people see us, Father, relate to one another, they would look at our relationships, how we serve one another and love one another and sacrifice to each other, and know that this is what shows the world what God is like, what Christ is like, and what his gospel is like. Praise you, Father, for the privilege of knowing him. And we give you thanks in the name of our Savior, Jesus.